change without having a bit of agitation. We have to shed this skin. It's going to take some time, but with people who are pouring energy and time into creating movements and conversations, it feels small and inconsequential. It actually does have a ripple effect and it all starts from the ground. So everything is going to be back to people. My job is to connect leaders closer to the people through mm. better listening using data and AI. Mm. Try this bad boy out for science. You are welcome to take a seat at the table where we use a new lens, where humanity are stakeholders. Different distinctions encouraged, intention starts from a no-judgment zone, a certain age is not criteria, and where you become comfortable with the uncomfortable to facilitate a new conversation. So, of course... Just as we press live, my breakfast arrives, coffee arrives, and you asked, where am I? I am sort of, we took off from Sydney. So we're outside of Sydney, we're up at Lennox Heads, but we didn't get out quick enough, so we still are on. We're over halfway of our isolation, and we're staying up here until we, until we go into, until Sydney says, hey, we are free and able to move around. So that's kind of where we are, makeshift studio, makeshift office space. But, you know, we are all live and well. So where are you right I'm now? I'm in Sydney. Ah, so you're yeah. in Sydney. Mm. How's that going? Oh, it's fine. You know, it's day six. <laughs> Not that we're counting or anything, right? It's Friday, you know, so we're going to yeah. do a Zoom one at nine. You know, that's this is how you deal with it. Yeah. It's a funny season we're in. And I think that this is, it's sort of like unpredictable yet this, and how do we, you know, I was just asking someone the other day, literally around this, but how do we even sort of move forward when there's all these variables that keep hitting us across the pathway, right? And we go, how do we even make decisions going forward? Like, how are you doing that right now? Well, it depends on the decision. Yeah. You know, different types of decisions, of, you know, different ways you make those decisions. Sometimes mm. it's plain. Sometimes you ask somebody. Sometimes you do lots of analysis and you figure out the right answer. So I don't know. Depends on the decision. Yeah. Look, it's just such a broad question in the way that I ask that. But I just kind of, we've got to make decisions, whether it's personal, whether it's professional, whether it's in, you know, the next business decision we're making and like a lot of people want us to lead as leaders across the globe right now but I often wonder if and how do we do this if it is so unpredictable at this moment so we have data that obviously shows us where we're at to today but we've got to keep making decisions going forward so how do we do that in such an unpredictable world well, again, I, I like to break something huge like that down into chunks. So, you know, otherwise it's too overwhelming, right? Yeah. You know, everyone has their own decision pathways. So some people would just throw themselves into just talking about that answer. But for me, I'm kind of like trying to hone it down. What kind of decision are you trying trying to talk about here? Because they're very different ways. Yeah, I love that. I love that. 
And I think that that's when you start talking about big topics. So today, by the way, welcome to the decision table. We are just going to have a conversation. But I was literally just thinking about that before I jumped on. And there's so many big questions we can ask and conversations that we can have. And I know in your world that, you know, you get to make some big decisions. But then it's like, how does the everyday person now put this into practice or do this more effectively? And so I love the fact that you go, hey, we can answer this in this big way, can, different depending what it is, but let's break it down to what it is. So if it's okay with you, I'm hoping to break down some things, go down some rabbit holes, have some conversations. I'd love to ask you a question around this, and that is, how have you built resilience over the last little while? Ah, again, a big question. It's a muscle. Yeah. And with, you know, with the muscle, it means it doesn't come naturally. Some people are probably born genetically more predispositioned to have resilience, but then they mm. enter the world, you know, in their upbringing, which then shapes how they are resilient or not. And then they may learn and read up on the theory of resilience and learn models and tools and then they can exercise them to yeah. build the muscle. But then you don't really know you have it until you're tested by life. Mm. Yeah. So, that so was have my- you been tested through life? <laughs> We've all been tested through life, but I think, you know, someone who says they haven't been tested through life is completely lucky or completely in denial. (laughs) It's definitely not been me. I'll have to tell you that one. But then everyone's been hit by COVID, so how could you not say you're learning resilience in this Mm. time? So resilience is actually interesting. I think, you know, we. I don't think you'll ever say, you can say that you're resilient. It's almost like you have resilience and you can cope with things that you know have happened in the past and next time around you're confident that, you can bounce back or go through them. Yeah. So resilience is interesting because, you know, I'm sure people have said to you, oh, you, you must be, you're so resilient. And it's all relative, isn't it? <laughs> I love that. It is totally relative. But in some ways there's definitely people who are more resilient, I would say. Definitely people who know how to access that muscle and exercise that muscle, just like mental toughness, you know, like, There are some people that would face COVID as we've all hit across the globe and some will take it head on and go, you know, we just make whatever happens. We've just got to make the best of that. Use what's in our hands. Go for it. And then there's others that probably will complain about it and not stop complaining about it until it's no longer an issue. Maybe there's others that even... You know, we go, so how do we do this? What Don't even know where to start, right? So I think there's a bit of a spectrum when we think about it. Yeah, and I also think that just because somebody is not complaining about it doesn't mean they're coping well with it. Oh, I like that. Okay, so people react. I, I always break it down into simple terms. When something happens or an emotion, yeah. which we measure, right, people express emotions either in two ways externally or internally, or they mm. express internally or externally. So just because somebody doesn't complain about it or whinge about it doesn't mean that they're actually dealing with it well. Hmm, I like that. Okay, so I didn't even know that we're going to go down into this bit, but this is such, no, 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 I love it. This is such a 
passion of my heart right now in the work that I'm doing. And that is, how do we measure if we look in a business organization and we're looking at culture and how we're building that out? If we know that how we feel, how physically well we are today, what's happening in our personal life, and we take that into the professional life, how do we measure in a way that that becomes more of a priority? Because here's the thing, when we're physically well, when we're feeling happy, when we have emotional, like we take on board and analyze what the emotional state is of our people, whether yourself, whether your team, whether your organization, this has a result or an outcome from this is things like retention, things like economic growth, things like productivity, yet we're not putting that as priorities or KPIs. So how do we measure something like this? Okay, I'm going to use an analogy. Beautiful. So measuring something like how people feel in an organisation or culture is actually very, very difficult to do in a conventional way. And when I say that, it means, for example, Mm. the analogy is how do I know that my plant is flourishing? You can either measure its output, its fruit, or how green Mm. the plant is. You can start to see whether there's some disease on it, signs of some, you know, sort of infection, you know, that's a symptom of a problem, or you can Mm. measure the acidity of the soil. Those things are sort of measures that you can take, which you can take into the workplace. Productivity, how much output, less, how many sick days or time off, those are sort of the hard measures. But it doesn't mean mm. that the culture of the place or the health of the plant is actually firing to the best of its potential. Yeah, exactly. What I actually think is that we, of course, you cannot improve on anything you're not measuring. But my Oh, I love that. Wait on, wait on. That was a droplet of wisdom right there. Say that again. Repeat that again. I think, oh, I know this, but I want to make sure anyone's listening to this gets that piece. Can you repeat that last one again? You know what? Sometimes things come out of my mouth that I've just (laughs) (laughs) Oh, girl, you're a woman after my own heart. All right. (laughs) Uh, But I'll give give it a go. That's resilience for you. Don't give up, even if you've got a... Excellent. I'm with you on that. Uh, Okay, let let me channel the juju again. (laughs) Yeah, because it was so good. Okay, so you can't improve on anything if you don't measure it. Yeah, yeah, that's exactly what it was. However, not all things are easily measured. Mm. So my theory in a culture context in the workplace is that's it. Culture is people and Mm -hmm. emotions, emotions are things that people feel but you cannot see how somebody feels until they express it. So, but if people don't express it, then how do you measure it? Yeah. I think it's the real, this is where, you know, the EQ and the soft skills being mm-hmm. the side of being a manager or a leader in an organisation or a co-worker, being a, you know, when there are some people in the group that just know how really good high IQ and they can sense when the mood is off or they can, you know, without anyone saying. One of my daughters is like that. We tell her she's got Mm. high superpowers, right? She's very emotional, very intense, but highly empathetic. She's the first to spot the kid that's feeling sad without Mm. even the kid saying anything, right? So people have those skills and we can develop those skills, but, you know, some people naturally have that 
ability to read the energy of a room. Yes. So when you're talking about culture, it's about energy. It's with people. And to build a good culture is not about policy or hard measures or measuring things like what I said, productivity, absenteeism, you know, all that stuff. I actually think it's about training or putting in place the right people to manage the other people, those that, that demonstrate this natural ability to have emotional quotient. Hmm. So when that's you an interesting. Can I just break that down? Because I think that's an interesting concept because that means then those that have that skills are the ones to then manage people. I am on the understanding in my world where I don't want to be managed. I don't know about you, but I was never good at being managed. I don't like managing people and I don't like being managed. But I love to learn, I love to develop, I love to stretch my thinking and to evolve. And I think old school leadership, and I'll challenge this, this is part of the decision table. By the way, there's no judgment and you can still have this as your belief. But I want to challenge that thinking because I think that a lot of the old school thinking is this is the three ways that we do things and this is how we do it and we manage people. And one of the things, and, then, and you know, this is part of all the insights and researching that I've been doing and a book that I'm writing right now, which is called Humanity as Stakeholders, which I believe is the future of leadership. And when I look at things like the way we can manage versus what if we have a different conversation and we use different lenses to have that conversation? And I think that one manages, one says this is the way to do it, and the other finds how we can coexist as an ecosystem to actually get the best out of that ecosystem no matter what the differences are at the table. Any thoughts around that? Oh, lots. (laughs) (laughs) I love it. Bring it on. (laughs) So firstly, there's a difference between a manager and a leader. That's point Mm. one. Yep, Uh, I agree. And I think your aversion, your religious aversion and mm. alert reaction to management, I share the same, but it doesn't mean we're not manageable. I think management yeah. is okay. control. Nobody likes to be controlled. So it's the different, like, I'm sure in your life you've had excellent managers who got you. Or maybe I have not, and that is why I've got this aversion to it. Maybe I need some therapy around that one. Uh, (laughs) No, for sure. There's been some amazing managers in uh, that have been a part of my world. Yeah, I've just seen a lot that haven't as well. Same in leadership, by the way. Yeah, which is why you and I are not in the zoo anymore. (laughs) Exactly. (laughs) I love it. So I think management. The word management, and I work Mm. with. and the nuance of language and words because words have power and meaning. Yes. With management, we have an aversion to it because the way that it was done felt control and it doesn't suit our style. But a good manager is actually somebody, again, back to the plants, somebody who nurtures and tends to the plants based on that Mm. in plant circumstances. I like that. Yeah, I like that thought. So they're more the nurturing that culture within it's a nurture I role. Can, I can go with that. See, there you go. It's, <laughs> you've got children, right? 
I absolutely six of them. What about what? you? I know, six. crazy, right? Six. And here's the other piece. I'm actually a GG, so I've got three grandbabies as well. I know, crazy. Wow. wow. All of you, Lung. <laughs> no, just kidding. <laughs> you mean all of o- Olay? It used to be all of Olay. Oh, is it, is it Olay? See, that's how much I don't even use it. That's your um, I know what all of you call. Oh, okay. I know what we used to all use all of you land. It was what we thought was going to bring the beauty in the stuff. Right, the ageless beauty oh that we God. all have. It's got right. like harmful stuff in it. Now we know, right? I know. Exactly. Wow. <laughs> so, yeah. And I, how many kids, wait on, how many kids do you have? I got two. I've two. Got two. Beautiful. Oh, wow. And that's enough. Enough. Yeah. I know. <laughs> By the way, six is enough. There's no more after that either. Oh. Like one is enough. <laughs> <laughs> That's a whole different story. Oh, anyway, okay, we can talk about yeah. that. So I just think that you know, as you you are a master in parenting. You've got six. So parenting is the same as management. Mm. It's like you have to nurture your child or you yeah. control your child. It's the same. And I used to use this question in an interview mm. to sense what the manager's you know management style was. So I'd ask them the question. Oh, so, you know, do you have any children? You know, and then, oh, yeah, tell me about your children. Mm. So this will tell. Like if they answer in the way that says, oh, I've got a child who's really good at maths and he's like this and he's in the soccer center, you know what they value. Mm. But then if they answer something like, oh, I've got one that's really artistic and it's really funny and just gets along with everything, you know, then you sort you know, so it's a real that's a real tell. And so not that I have really used that honing device very well because I have really gone for roles where the managers were really bad. <laughs> <laughs> like really bad. I get it. Like, you know, you get married at the altar and then you realise, holy What crap. did I just do? How do I get out of this? Yeah, exactly. You know, we've all been there. So it's yeah. a hard it's not around policy or structures or frameworks. Mm. Bring it back down to one-on-one relationships and and why do people manage? I think there are people who need to really question themselves. There are people in my world, again, very simplistic way, two types of people. Mm-hmm. One, people like to manage because they actually like to work with teams and nurture and, yeah. you know, care for the farm. Then there's the other one which then wants to manage to have people, headcount, kingdom building, type yeah. mentality they're not good managers they just want to amass more and more people because more mm. happens you get paid more when you have more people and you kind of look more important when you have more people that report into you doesn't it yeah no I love that and just going back to my writing at the moment so it's kind of in my head a lot so probably some questions today are coming out of that but when I talk about humanity as stakeholders I think of humans like you and I, that's as simple as it is. Like it's funny when you talk about humanity, people think this this big concept and I go, no, you, I, that makes us humans, we're part of humanity, right? Like it's as simple as that. But when we think about the decisions we're making in building out the cultures that we are doing going forward, I think about that as are we adding value to the table or are we taking away? In other words, are we adding to humanity going forward or taking away from it? As simple as that in the decisions that we're making. And so the reason behind these questions, and I think is 
fascinating having a conversation with you around it is that we need to get back to that human connection. In other words, knowing that I am a human, I come, I'm a mom with like kids, I'm also a businesswoman, I'm also an investor, and I'm really geeky in who I am and what I bring to the table. Like I'm really analytical, I love data, but I'm also extremely creative. I'm one of those freaks that literally work in both sides very strongly of the brain. And I'm ambidextrous, so I've got this theory around all of this as well. And I love getting theories and trying to either break them or see that they're real theories and then work what are those patterns to make those happen, right? So there's a lot of things that I go human to human and then let's get that data happening and let's connect those things because culture will not change if we don't measure. You've said that already, right? Like, and I go, how do we measure because if we take a little thing that's happening right now, we see an increase at the moment of, what is it? Not mental, mental illness. I don't know. What is it in businesses right now? Those sort of things, right? Like we're seeing an increase on that. People are feeling, you know, there's going to be a lot of PTSD, I reckon, from this pandemic as well. And we're already seeing some of that things, but we haven't seen the full consequences of it. So we can either ignore that and just go our KPIs in our business, our organization are just going to be on these data because we want the data on that to see how we can keep moving forward. I think if we do that, we are going to be missing absolute important integral things that will actually give us more growth going forward. So how do we do that? Like, how do we bring that in as a key performing indicator in what we're building out? Because I get that emotional and EQ is hard to do. But I also think that if we're asking the right questions and we're keeping data on those, whatever those answers are, then that will give us data to make better decisions going forward. I know that was roundabout, but it's still forming in my head as I'm sort of gathering more insights around this and have more conversations with people. Any thoughts? Yeah, I do, but they're not structured thoughts. I'm trying to pin you down. That's that's what we're doing. Like this is why I want to have them because I think part of this new approach to leadership is that we're not necessarily knowing all the answers right now. We're not knowing how to do this better and more effectively, but I do without any doubt know that we have to have conversations like this. We have to start asking different questions so we can disrupt patterns of where we have been going to change that for different results at the table. I think it's having the right people having those discussions, not having... So in my mind, you can have all these discussions on the ground in middle management, but ultimately if the decision-makers who need to approve of the change are not in that conversation, I think it's a waste Time, which is what we've seen a lot in workplaces in around DIE, DIE, diversity, inclusion, and equality. Yeah, die. That's a bad acronym. It's die. Oh, it is too. Okay, should change it anyway. Yeah. Um, so you know that it's been around for a while. It's a hype. Everyone's talking about it. But you know what? The right people are not in the conversation, hence we still have this inertia with Hmm. real change. Do you agree? Yes, totally. So how do we get the right people at the table 
having this kind of conversation? It goes back to human to human. What's in it for them personally? Mm. It could be my reputation as a leader. It could be my salary, my job. It could be anything. You have to appeal to that individual's motivations to join that conversation. And that's with any. Tell me more about that. I'm listening because I'm wanting to learn more of where you're going with this. Okay. So, for example, yesterday there was something that came through on my LinkedIn feed that said the KPMG leader, mm. uh, I don't know what his role is, but he's the Uber leader of KPMG in Australia, just started and immediately he put in effect 26 weeks of parental leave, no questions asked, no tenure required, done. Mm. Now, wow. right. How long have they probably been talking about that? Years. Mm. Right? So it takes the leader who makes the ultimate decision to be part of that conversation. Yeah. Because, you know, we've all been talking about it in Middle Earth. I call middle management Middle Earth. <laughs> you know? I love that, Middle Earth. You know what I mean? And so yeah. it's all about motivations. And I think if you bring it back down to one-to-one people, Mm. I don't think there's enough of the right people having the right conversations. And this is the work that I do with my company. We listen to the people through big data and AI. Mm. And then we talk about what people are feeling and saying around issues that matter. (laughs) And, you know, so it's the disconnect in the system, which is the, you know, need to have the right information but they also need to be in the right conversation so there's Mm. beautiful right conversations but there's no catalyst because there's no authority to change anything because the structure of a corporation is hierarchy pretty much yeah pretty much it's not always a triangle it might be a different shape but you know there's levels (laughs) which decisions are made right yeah exactly so then that begs the question well why like for example you go to politics Mm. The ultimate pinnacle at the moment, you know, is the Prime Minister who is, you know. Correct. He's got people around him. Now, we see there's a lot of disconnect with the conversation that's happening on the ground on earth and the lack of what seems to to sound like the inability to listen, Mm. even glaringly obvious. So, again, in my mind, you know, what's the motivation behind that individual's person, like in their head that stops them, prevents them from being part of the conversation. And when we're mm-hmm. saying part of the conversation, it actually means conversation. It means yeah. I listen, I really listen, then yeah. I and I about that's a conversation. What we mm. have a lot also is ineffective communication where I'm standing here talking about it and I'm waiting for you to finish what you're going to say and mm. then... I'm going to say my turn. That's not a conversation that gets anywhere. It's exactly. So that also is an element of dysfunctional communication, which then you, so if you don't have the right people in the right conversation, you yeah. don't have the conversational skills and you don't have the right questions and you don't have the right data, what's the point? And that's where we're at. Yes. Nothing changes. Nothing changes. It just becomes wasted energy. And then we I all- so agree. I so agree on all of that. So, yeah, we've got... <laughs> to get the right people, right conversations, and then we've got to ask questions. Right. Or we've got to listen to the data that we already have and ask better questions knowing that we have data that we have. Would you agree on this or is there more around that? Listening. And listen. Yeah. 
Yeah. Like not here. Listen. Yeah. So what are you seeing from the data that you're gathering? What are some of the big things that we need to listen to today? Oh, well, Mm. this is such an interesting time. By the way, before you answer that, Janine's saying, hey, to two of the smartest women I know. Hey, (laughs) it's because of Janine we are here today. So thank you. And I agree, she is one smart cookie over there. (laughs) Janine's on the board of uh, Maven Data, so... She's been very gracious connecting with lots of fantastic people, including yourself. So, yes, thank you, Queen Janine. Hail yes. Queen Janine. <laughs> That's right, exactly. A moment for Janine Garner. If you don't know her, go find out about her. She's awesome. <laughs> Sorry, I got sidetracked. Oh, me too. Track. I always do when Janine's in the house. We, we have a bit of fun, that girl and I. What was your question? Yeah, so with the data, what do we need to listen to now? What are you seeing? What am I saying? Oh, yes. Okay. So we measure the pulse of people through internet data, websites, Mm. you know, everything outside of firewall. So we analyze using AI petabytes of this content and we then measure and test sentiment towards any topic. So we have recently been studying vaccine hesitancy and released our report, which is a nice story commentary based on our data, and we tell it in a way that sheds a light on issues like vaccine hesitancy, but from a public sentiment lens as as events of news roll in. So it's like data delivered differently, right? Mm. So what we're seeing is that earlier in the year, I had already seen vaccine hesitancy as very strong, meaning people do not want to take the vaccine, COVID vaccine, for a variety of reasons. Now, this is well before the rollout shambles, well before the AstraZeneca blood clotting concerns. Yeah. Before, you know, this was even at the time when the government was saying we're at the head of the queue mm. with everybody by October 2021 in Australia will be vaccinated. Vaccinated, Yeah. yeah. So this was back then and we had already Mm. started to see hesitancy coming through quite strongly. Mm. This is quite contrary to what was talked about in the news and what they survey in polls and the polling data and that sort of information is what guides government actually at the moment on a lot of major things. Mm. So we're here saying, look, vaccine hesitancy is really intense. It's increased over time and it's Mm. increased over time despite lockdown right and that's wow. the thing so wow. right the theory mm. was all we're in lockdown the more we want to get out of lockdown and then so we, we all go get vaccinated yeah exactly. that wasn't the case and we tested mm. south wales sentiment and victorian sentiment mm. because we you know these two states had very different experiences with lockdown right totally now, what's interesting is that the data said that despite Victoria being in fourth lockdown recently, fourth lockdown, right, that vaccine hesitancy has continued to increase. Yeah. Now, you can look at that data and go, oh, I don't believe that data. Mm. A lot of people say that stuff all the time. I don't believe it because I don't understand it. Okay, fine. But mm-hmm. we've got many, many proof points to say that our methodology has been accurate in predicting the future. And so when we're saying vaccine hesitancy has increased and it's still very strong and intense, 
we need to do something about it. Wow. Because, mm. you know, the official government line, even by the health minister recently, said in a press conference that vaccine hesitancy is not an issue. There is no hesitancy towards the vaccine. Yeah. But here's the, here's the issue when things like that happen, right, yeah. is no one, some people go, oh, I just heard that, so that's now a truth. And then they make decisions based on that as a truth. Then others go, oh, look, we're just hearing so much that is not true because it, we can back it up over here. So where do we, like I love the fact that you go, hey, we've got different points along the way that proves that this is proven data, but we need to hear more about that kind of thing. So how do we get a more of awareness around data we can trust so we can make better decisions? Well, that's my charge every day of the week. <laughs> I'm giving you the open platform to tell us. <laughs> because I think this is really interesting. And I think that part of, you know, when if I talk about leadership, as leaders, it is hard to lead when you don't trust the system. And that is kind of scary if we look at the political space right now, who's in leadership, and if there are people in leadership within that that don't trust the system or what's being said, then that's what we're getting policies made around. That's what decisions, that's how our school system is being built on. That is kind of a scary environment. So how do we take good data that actually can be trusted and we trust that system and then make more effective decisions. There's many parts in the conversation around can the data be trusted. Data itself is not an evil thing. It's just a collection of information, events, mm. behaviours, etc., captured in electronic format for analysis. In essence, data is not the evil. No, I agree. How do you process data is through technology, say algorithms, the algorithm is not evil. AI mm. is not evil. It's <laughs> humans who perform good and bad mm. on the data that's used on the algorithms that are deployed. So it's like this. Guns don't kill people. Yeah. People, people kill people with guns. <laughs> so when you talk about can the data be trusted, it's more around can the people who translate the data be trusted? Oh, that's good. Because mm. when you have data, you can analyse it in so many different ways. You give a data set to 10 different people, everybody will cut and dice it and have their own way of interpreting what comes out of it, guaranteed. Yeah, because we've got biases, we've got our own conditionings we're taking to the table. But that's where I think it goes back to what we talked about earlier, that it's around having a different conversation and getting the right people at the table with the right data. And part of the right people is that not only being able to listen, but there's mm. another thing of being open-minded to actually go, you know what, I don't know everything. Yeah. I will never know everything. So I need to have multiple perspectives. Correct. Listen to them all. So you know, I just very simply, again, I just look at the, the situation with politics. Mm. Why is politics so disengaged with what should be happening? We all kind of sense what the right thing to do with these big issues, right, climate change, 
you know, relations with other countries, whether we... Oh, you mean as humans we've got some brains we could use ourselves, yeah? We've got hearts. We've got hearts and brains. Hearts and brains, yes, I like that. But the issue is that I think the current system of politics, it's Mm. not good for efficient decision-making like in corporations. So Mm. not to say that corporations are perfect, but... At least in a corporation, you've got a structure where the CEO who makes the ultimate call will have the, around the decision table all the chiefs of the different departments providing their lenses on a decision. Yeah. So chief strategy, chief you know, marketing, chief finance, chief operations, chief legal, chief, 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 chief. That's the roundtable conversation of which the CEO will then, you know, be able to elicit and listen, you know, and generate the environment that allows them to offer their opinion and their advice. Mm. Ultimately, it's the CEO's call, is it not? Well, that comes back to will they take ownership of that? Well, that's another element of that. But ultimately, (laughs) the the process of the decision-making around the decision table is it's multidisciplinary, Right. Absolutely. Um, so when you look at politics, I just don't see that happening because mm. I don't know how they really make decisions, but there's advisors to each minister and a minister actually it's like, you know, when you, they, they keep shuffling the chairs of the minister, the portfolios, Yeah. one, one day they're defence, another day they're, they're trade, another day they're legal, another day they're innovation. That doesn't happen in corporate. The finance manager doesn't then go and become the legal counsel who then jumps and becomes <laughs> chief strategy officer. Like, Good point. Happen, right? But it happens in yeah. Poland. So then what happens? These ministers who have incredible power are advised by advisors. Now, I don't know anyone that I respect mm. in business who's actually worked as a political advisor. Mm. So then you go, who are advising these people? Then you go. I often wonder that, by the way, who are advising. And they're usually young people. And I don't have anything against young people at all. I was once a young person. I still am. (laughs) What are you talking about? (laughs) But, you know, like you look at the model of what's going on and you start to unpick and go, that's what's happening. And then the Mm. data that they collect that they rely on most heavily because it's in politics, you only get to play in that chair if you get voted in. So there's that circular tail wags the dog problem. The polling data is some of their key sources of information. And polling data, how is that collected? It's just a sample of about 3,000 people's opinions. And what we say to someone doesn't necessarily mean mean it. We might not tell the truth. Or we might not, like we've had today on this conversation, we might not have processed it all. There might be more layers we need to go down to cement that as a, yeah, that's exactly what I'm thinking and that's where we'd go next for the next step, right? Like it's, this is part of having a conversation. And I think, you know, just in part of that is why it's so important for us to be able to have conversations like this where we don't have it all sorted. You said it yourself before, you know, we don't have all the answers, but we have to have a willingness to have the real data and a real conversation around it. Like here's a question in the the comments. How do we get the media to share the truth versus their version of the truth or the facts? And I think this goes back to it, right? Like if we can't discuss it in an open forum 
the true facts, even if we don't even know exactly what next step is, then I don't have those facts to even start thinking about, being curious around, making maybe my own decisions and then decisions I make with my children. I'm only making it from someone who is taking whatever information they have and now they're telling me that's the truth. And I think if you were to answer that, how do we get the media to share the truth versus their version of truth or facts? How do we do that? Media is another beast and another ecosystem. Yeah. Um, I think what I sense in this one is that media have their own agenda as with any any organisation has their own agenda. And the agenda is not a bad thing. An agenda could be purely financial, purely whatever. whatever. It's not about what the purpose of that agenda is, but everything has an agenda. So when you look at media and their agenda, you can really, you know which mastheads have left-leaning, mm right-leaning, this or that. We know who owns them, who also have their own agendas. Now, you just put that into context in that world, but we're also seeing that there are individual voices now, like yourselves, creating media. You are a media channel, Mm -hmm. even if it's a small one compared to the big guys, right? So it all comes down to people will naturally gravitate, naturally gravitate Mm -hmm. to who they feel they trust. And that trust has to be earned over time. Yeah. You can't just go out and say, just trust me. Good point. I think we often want to though, right? Right. So you have to earn it over time. And so then Mm. you can see why general media now, like they're scrambling to get people to to fund their, you know, their subscription (laughs) model. Because that that model doesn't work anymore. We can get news that we trust for free without an agenda Mm -hmm. that I know of. (laughs) Yeah. So this is the natural falling away. It will take time because these big systems are going to hold on as hard and as long as possible, but ultimately if they don't have people watching and reading them, advertisers will fall away and that model will implode. It will take time. And some have already died. Mm. Print because of that model. Print, you physically have to have the high cost of you know, of printing or a digital, you can get away with it. its lower cost, but the journalists have gone, the independent journalists have gone, right? Mm. But you know what? Independent journalists, they can now get spread out. They can be independent now. They can, yeah. you know, I don't think it's a bad thing, but it's going to stay, take some natural evolution. So when it comes yes. back to the question of how do you make decisions when there's information that you feel you can't trust, mm-hmm. well, you just have to find ways of sticking with voices that you feel are trustworthy. I like that. And time will tell, right? You can feel the tone and the angle when you read an article. Yeah. One event happens in market, like COVID vaccine announcement about something. One media outlet will take it off that tangent. One yeah. will take it there, there. And then you just have this natural affinity to who you feel represents your voice and you will be reading more of that. Now, whether it's truth or not, we will never know, honestly, unless you generated the news yourself and then you saw it reproduced somewhere else, mm-hmm. then you call out whether it was true or false. But none of us are in that position and we will never be. It's about, mm-hmm. again, having that layer of translation that you feel you trust. Mm. Not really an oh, answer. I like that. I really like that. What was that? It's not really an answer, but it's it is an it answer. Is. It is. It's. I, I like that. I think what I love about that is it pricks curiosity in my brain. 
And I go, so how do we do that more effectively? What would that need to look like? That's where I immediately go when you start injecting some curiosity within me. I also go to that point that I go, so how do we future-proof this? How do we now, when we look at where the state of economy is, not just in Australia but across the globe, when we look at environmental things that are happening and the challenges there, and then we look at social impact and we go, how do we future-proof? Because all of us only have 24 hours, seven days a week, and you say it takes time to listen to voices, to get, you know, and make, like, get trusted sources. And it's like, yeah, but these things are only going to, the gap between problem and solution is only going to keep widening. And that's a scary thing for our next generation and the generations to come. So for me, that's like, whoa. So how do we narrow that gap, build those relationships, hear those voices, trust those sources, but also know we're shifting the dial from problem to solution and narrowing that gap. That's where I go once now that you've just beautifully had this conversation with me. (laughs) I know that's like, whoa, but that's literally where my brain goes now. Yeah, your brain goes like this. It Oof. does, and then it comes right back down. You have to, like, bring you back down. I do. So, so here's just a little funny thing. We, um, I had a collaborative partnership. I want to build out this community not based on one person but with collaborative partners. And so because of that, you know, it's not as easy as, as building out just with one person and this is what you're doing. And I just knew there was this everything else I'm great with, but there was this one piece that I wasn't great with. And I was like, if we don't put this in the foundational of where we are going and what we're building out as culture within here, and we don't measure it as part of the things that is priority for us going forward, we're going to miss it. So I nearly killed everyone in that conversation because as one person said it so beautifully, they said, you went for this real big deep dive and you took us with you. And then you saw us all going, and you brought us all back up again. That's what I do. But I only do it, by the way, with people who I feel can come with me on that. So other times, I will just go at this level. But you are doing such important work. You are doing, you're thinking what you've done. I don't even know a lot about you. I just, you know, I know through Janine pieces of it and what you've just you know how I've got to know you over this conversation and I just think if you know what you know then we need to be more aware of that so that I can and others listening can make more effective decisions going forward Mm. well she goes where do I take that (laughs) (laughs) it's okay I get it just breathe I'm going to respond to one thing that you start mm. said at the start, which was how do you future-proof, mm. right? Now, I'm going to actually challenge you and say to put it in those words puts a lot of pressure mm. because it's ultimately the future is, you know, we can't determine the future. It will always be different to what we think it is going to be. Oh, this is interesting. Mm. So why spend time and energy and angst on trying to proof against the future? Oh, I love that. Can I just say why I'm saying that? Because it's come up in so many conversations lately. And part of it 
is through people in the defence, Australian defence, who are saying we need to future proof. And that is why I'm bringing it up as questions because I have a problem with it as well. Well, of course, you're talking to someone from defence. All they do is defend. I know. But I think there's something about it that we need to listen to. Yeah, but you know what? That's why I don't work in that world of (laughs) defence. I love it. I'd be constantly looking behind my back, feeling in threat and worried about Mm. Well, they do lots of what-if scenarios and they're, they're brilliant at calculating what if happens and then they optimise the solution to best future-proof for a future attack. Oh, I love that. From some future unknown by some future method of some future destruction which we cannot quantify. Like that to me is a waste of... I'm not saying we don't need defence because we are in this world, right? But yeah. that's that's not how I think about the world. And if mm, I did... I love it. I'd be paralysed. So... For the rest of us who don't feel the need, mm. let the defence force deal with that. They're good for that. By I'm the not. way, they're not the only ones saying it. It was just it's come up quite a few times through a few people within that. And, you know, there are some that say it in the business world right now and moving into AI, you know, definitely that we need to be future-proofing against where AI is used by humans in the wrong way. You're going to get that with somebody who works in assessing a paper form that you went to for a bank credit card back in the day. Like (laughs) they had the wrong processes. They didn't mean to do it wrong. You get rejected for your credit card. You don't know why. How's that? That's different to AI. It just basically automates it so it does it faster and more accurately consistently. It's the processes that are at fault, not the technology that are at fault. Oh, I love it. It's mm. everyone blames AI. It's like, no, we made the algorithm. We made AI automates stuff. Yes. So if you've got a bad process, it just amplifies the bad process. Oh, that's so good. So, you know, like this mm. is the frustration I have because the level of awareness and I'll have to say literacy in data and education yeah. is quite behind the rest of the world which is reflecting in the Mm -hmm. way that we respond to narratives like AI and data. We trust the data. As I said, data is just an input. It's not evil. It's what you do with it, you know. Oh, I so agree. You're a woman after my own heart, like seriously. Because, no, I... But I also think that when data and in the process of putting that data together to get the algorithms through the AI, that we do need the right people having the right conversations at the table so that we are looking at humanity as stakeholders as those decisions are made. So I do believe there is a part of that. And I have talked in uh, quite a great global space around this conversation. And I said, my concern is, that in 20 years' time, that the data that you're using, well, the AI that they were using, you haven't considered how this has an effect on human beings. And I'd love, maybe I just haven't seen something around it. I'd love to hear your opinion on it. And they said to me, this is a great concern and you are right and we haven't even looked through that lens and that... We have, and they literally said to me, we have no idea what this will mean in 20 years' time. So when I hear stories like that, that's the piece that I don't like. 
when I know that I had a son who had a lot of special needs, wasn't even meant to make birth, and there is much AI that has been created in the medical that I am so grateful for. And when I know, the thing that I really truly believe is when we can meet with AI and we know as a human how to use the muscle of human intelligence that I talk about all the time and I believe that this is part of the new approach to leadership is when we know how to exercise that. When we can combine those things, that to me is giving us a future and a future for our generations. I've got nothing to add to that. So, I mean, you did question, and then you answered your own question. So I'm like, okay. (laughs) No, because this is things I just love that I've been able to have this conversation with you because I think, you know, you say we need to have more awareness around it. That's because we're not having these conversations. And I'm just so grateful that you were willing to have this conversation so that we can bring it to the attention again, right? And to have you know, and cement some of these things in our brain. So if people want to know, by the way, more about what you do and, and who you are, where do they go? Where's Google. the best place? Just they go Google. It's the easiest. I don't just, I don't I love say that. anymore. It's just Google mm. and find whatever thing grabs your attention. <laughs> mm. I love it. Yeah. I love it. So the only question I do ask on every decision table, it's, and we've come to that point right now, and that is this. What are you taking from our conversation today? But there are other crazy boof idea people like, <laughs> like me out there and yeah. that there are people who have six children and run multiple businesses and have so mm. many hats that are still functioning and have enough drive and energy to hold these conversations. So... Mm. Hats off to you, you that I see a positive future despite mm. the fact that we all feel this at the moment. It's all a necessary part of the process. You yeah. can't change without having a bit of agitation, right? Like we have to shed this skin. It's going to take some time. But with people like yourselves who are pouring energy and time into, you know, creating movements and conversations, mm feels small and inconsequential it actually does have a ripple effect and you know it all starts from the ground so everything is going to be back to people I believe Mm. my job is to connect leaders closer to the people through Mm. better better listening using data and AI Mm. Mm. I love that oh what I'm taking from today's conversation so many things I'm actually going to go through some of the things because, like, you have you have pricked some of my curiosity to go deeper in some of the conversation that we've had today. But I love how we've brought together things like trusting the system and even, you know, even though there is much data that we don't want to be listening to right now, there is data if we listen to the right voices, if we want to see the data, find the data, it is there. And that was really interesting. And the other piece that I really loved was the whole human to human, even though I talk about it all the time, humanity as stakeholders, that piece around this is not necessarily just a quick fix. And I think this is the tricky piece of my work across the board and has continued to be. But I love having this conversation with you around this is that 
we are here knowing that each step that we're making is shifting that dial closer and narrowing that gap. And I think that's the piece that I'm taking from our conversation is that it is these, even at times feels like insignificant conversations. It's at times wondering why is this data, how can we prove that this data, it's just like, no, with the right people, the right conversations and listening, we can keep shifting that and narrowing that gap. So, oh my gosh, I'm taking so much from our conversation. I just want to thank you so much for being here and connecting because, you know, Janine said, hey, we need to connect. And both of us go, I have no idea why, but let's just connect. So thank you for being willing to have a conversation, press live, do it like this. Is there anything you want to leave before we close off the broadcast and don't run away straight after, but I want to end this broadcast. Is there anything that I haven't let you be able to say today that you've not been able to say? No, I mean, if anything, I'd like, you know, the opportunity to socialise the launch of our Mm. new service called We've launched Maven Pulse yesterday. and Well done. (laughs) Thank you. Thank you. So it's essentially what kind of what we've been talking about, born out of the frustration of reading news and sort of hearing it from a one lens dimension, you know, we decided to take upon putting commentary on world events and things that impact all of us through, you know, mm. showcasing our insights and commentary on these events like COVID-19 and vaccine hesitancy putting our lens based on what we measure in public sentiment in relation, in reflection to these events. Mm. And then we produce a beautiful, witty story with facts and stats and AI in it. So it's about elevating the conversation. It's about putting a different angle on news of the world, bit of light reading, but it's there to prick your brain. Yes. um, And to showcase that, you know, I do see a pathway out of this vaccine rollout debacle. I really do because the data tells us very clearly what should we do, how should we communicate, what do people care about, what they're scared about. If you know all that information, it's just one big communications campaign. That's what we're trying to do here. It's influencing people, but you've got to provide deep listening, which starts going back to ground source, internet data, what are we observing, what are we reading about people online, et cetera. And then for me to translate what I see. Oh, I love that. And you have translated what you see so beautifully today in this conversation. So I'm going to end the broadcast now. Thank you. Thank you very much. Thank you. Amazing droplets of wisdom for you from today's episode. Make sure you subscribe, ensure you leave an awesome rating and review. Our hope is this podcast creates a new awareness, activates ownership to what is next, a curiosity for the need to be part of the change and to make footsteps of sustainability from today onwards. If you want to further your journey with us, then apply to join us at our next Leaders Movement Parlay. The link is in the show notes. We appreciate you. Help us to help build a tribe who make humanity as stakeholders. To achieve this together, recommend this podcast to leaders, innovators, and movement changers. Big love until we see you on the next Decision Table Series podcast episode.